Radio. Conversations with Daniel Noor. Tackling the tough questions on cradio.org.au. Hello, Cradio listeners. My name is Daniel Noor, and when I entered the Catholic Church on September the 21st, 2013, I brought all of my confusion, anxiety, and uncertainty right in with me. As a young journalist searching for the truth, Every week, I'll be interviewing an expert on a hot topic and trying to get straight answers on all the moral, political and social issues of the day. I invite you to join me and to have your questions about today's tough topics answered as well. This is Conversations with Daniel Noor. This is the third in a three-part series on the plight of the refugee. So far, we've spoken to a number of outspoken advocates on the topic, some working in the fields of politics and advocacy in general, but none yet really working from within the community per se. And that's where today's guest comes in. Josie Young is a busy working mother from nine to five, but an activist for the rights of the refugee the rest of her time. As a former employee of the Department of Immigration and Citizenship, working in and outside of detention centres, including the Christmas Island Immigration Detention Centre and the Pontville Immigration Detention Centre, Josie possesses a unique insight into the particular realities of Australia's refugee processing protocols. Based on her encounters with refugees and asylum seekers, asylum seekers rather, her book A Reason to Live places fictional characters into real life conflicts, uh, walking or rather uh, walking with Australians through the plight of the refugee and the, and the asylum seeker. The book is available on Amazon and we're very happy to have Josie with us today. Thank you, Josie. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thanks. I'm really looking forward to to hearing your perspective. It's been a long time coming. Uh, Listeners might be interested to know that, you know, technology failed us a little earlier in the piece and and finally we've made it. it. Yeah, it really did. Um, But in any case, Josie, could you first tell us a little bit about yourself and especially as a mother and really a citizen, why has this issue in particular become so important to you? We can actually hear, I think that's your son's voice kind of in the background. Yes, it is. Let me just move a little bit further away. Sleep it's, is eluding us tonight. It's, it's proof that he is there. Um, That's right. But if you could tell us, I suppose, a little bit about yourself and your experiences. Well, I'm a Tassie girl. I was born and I grew up here. But over the past 15 years, I've been working in my work and as a volunteer within um, within refugee and migrant communities. And in particular, I've notice that so many people are coming into Australia or trying to come into Australia to better their lives and to help, you know, to help their communities back home. Um, And they just have beautiful stories of amazing strength and amazing willingness to be kind despite having suffered greatly and to make the world better for the next generations. And those stories are often not heard. And we're talking about people, you know, coming here by boat, losing people along the way, leaving their home countries only because they would die if they didn't. And the trauma that these people endure and then the trauma of resettling in a new country and struggling to survive here 
I don't feel leaves a lot of room for them to be able to educate the wider community on their, you know, on their plight and on their stories. And so I thought, as I've been privileged to hear stories over the past 15 years, perhaps I can retell some some stories that might help Australia to understand. Mm. Um, because, yeah. Well, I, I mean, just I... never want. Sorry. I'm just going to to say that I think we all kind of feel that we all feel a sense of um, obligation or maybe a, a pinprick of guilt. But what makes you different, Josie, is that you were exposed in a very specific way to the circumstances that we all hear about, I suppose, um, offhand. Could you let us know a little bit about what, what you saw in the detention centres that you worked in did for you as a person? Absolutely. See, my job in the detention centre initially was I was a refugee status assessment officer, which means I would fly to Christmas Island and interview people and then decide whether or not they could stay in Australia. And so I would get very limited information on a person. It was generally a man um, saying, you know, this is a fairly Kurd, he's an apostate, he's from Iran or he's a homosexual or he's... Um, from ethnically the wrong group to be living where he was and he wants a visa. And so I'd go in and I'd interview him and we'd talk about the political histories, you know, their involvement in political movements. We'd talk about torture history. We'd talk about trauma. There are times when I'd conduct an interview with a client, which might take eight hours or nine hours of a person sharing really deeply their experiences and sharing with me the harshest of things that had happened to them we're talking about people having electrodes um attached to their genitals because they spoke their language with the wrong accent um we're talking about people being raped publicly as an example to other people from that background um you know really intelligent really passionate really kind men who perhaps, you know, were studying medicine and then were arrested because they protested against human rights abuses and after that were targeted by governments. And so all of these people were sitting in detention centres around Australia. And so in my role I had this privilege where I was able to meet them and for some make a difference in their lives to be able to stamp a yes on a visa. Mm. It must have been an enormous amount of pressure dealing with those with, with, with those fragile people? Um, it, it was, but I try and approach people in a way that's very, very open and compassionate. When I would, in, I was aware of how long the process would take and I knew I might interview someone for seven hours and have their assessment done within a fortnight. But then maybe it would take ASIO 18 months to pass a security clearance. And... You know, when you go into the detention centre, you can see what these prisons do to a man's soul. And so I remember really clearly interviewing this gentleman. He was a, um, he was Persian uh, from Iran and he'd converted from Islam to Christianity. And for that, he'd been persecuted and also for his political involvement in some other parties. But we were talking and I remember explaining to him saying, look, it's been a privilege to interview you. And I used to tell him, look, I can't say yes or no to mm. your visa because I don't know if what their security clearance will come up with. But I used to say, look, from here I'm going back to Melbourne where my office is. After that, 
it will take me about, I might, I'll be on Christmas Island for another week. Then after that, it might take me five weeks before you get a letter from me saying yes or no. And then if that letter says yes, it might take another one year for ASIO to say yes, which means you have one year and six weeks to learn English. Because when you get out of detention, I want your kids to be able to play with my kids. Mm, all of this was and said to do that, an... they're going to need to speak English. And this was... Yeah, with an interpreter. Of course. Okay, that's how you must have had that conversation. Wow. Yes. Mm. And so you, in, you must have invested so heavily in, in the lives of the people in front of you. Was oh, yeah, that something I, that um... happened naturally? Was that part of the job description? Did you try to prevent yourself from becoming too close to the, I suppose, the clients who you were interviewing uh, or the candidates, if you like? Yeah. I mean, every, I think every community worker and everybody who works with vulnerable people needs to be able to disassociate from that work when they go home at the end of the day. And as a worker, I'm quite good at that. As a human, I can't switch off 100%. Nobody can. That's not normal. But I believe it's possible to be friendly without being a friend. <laughs> and so I can look at a, a client in front of me and see a human being and treat somebody with a respect that a human being deserves without crossing a professional or a personal boundary. I adhered to every law and every policy. I was never actually even asked to violate those rules um, because you can do your job and still be a human. What did these people go through exactly in, in immigration detention, Josie? And can you give us maybe a breakdown? Did they all come from the one place? Where were they being held? Okay, um, so the clients that were in or that are in any of the immigration detention centres could be from any country in the world. Mm. Um, Christmas Island works a little differently because of where it is, because it's an island. And so basically boats would come usually from Indonesia and on the way be intercepted by the Navy who would get the people off the boat and come and put them in sort of an entry area on Christmas Island at which point they were, you know, they'd be have all their medicines taken off them, their glasses and everything else, basically in a really dehumanising way, mm. um, and then be asked by somebody, who are you, what are you doing here and what do you want? The person would then have all that information documented and that would be sent to someone like me in my office in Melbourne. Um, and I would then use that information to research the country the person was from and their age and whatnot, so I'd know what to ask them and what to talk about in an interview. From that intake area, the people were then divided by age and gender into different camps um, across the island. So, you know, all the single young men or single men were together, um, families in another area and women and children in another, unaccompanied minors, different again. And then within those different areas, um, their people lived under constant watch, hmm. it's like a maximum security prison to get in, like even as a worker. It's, you know, airport security, you're going through, hmm. you're being scanned, that's nothing. Like we're walking through hallways made of bars. If you've ever seen a prison movie, you've seen the entry to Christmas Island Detention Centre. Hmm. It's hardly a luxury hotel, which is what some people seem to presume it is. It was definitely not a luxury hotel. Um People often, when they're being cynical, like, oh, but, you know, it's better than where they came from. You know, at least they're safe there. And I said, like, well, are they safe? 
Like there are people suiciding every day in detention and they're not doing that because they feel safe. You know, there are guards raping women in detention and the Australian government failing to protect them or to take them seriously. Mm. Like the people are not safe in detention. Now, did you come across incidents, say, of rape in your capacity as, I suppose, uh, a caseworker, if you like? Or well, is that I, I something w- that you're that you're now hearing about with the rest of us because of the information that some of the medical staff, for example, who the government we've recently discovered have tried to silence, you know, through a bill that was passed in Parliament, have actually confessed to? How, how do you know? Okay. In um, my role with immigration, when I interviewed people, I would hear stories of fear of assault from clients, yes, but I wasn't a mm. caseworker. When I later worked in the Pontville Immigration Detention Centre, I had a more um, face-to-face role with clients. So I was talking to people daily and interacting with them within the centre. And in, the, in those conversations that would come up, yes, this, um, this guard did assault me. This man has said, you know, he would rape my wife. This man has mm. said he would do this to me. Um, that was a male-only centre, um, though... Yes, they did tell me that there are assaults occurring. In detention? hmm yes. So, I mean, that's uh, – I'm trying not to editorialise because you shouldn't do that, but it's sure. really a heinous thing to think that people who have sought protection, uh, you know, and, and with presumed, you know, fall under, I suppose, the, the banner of the Australian government, uh, are more – endangered and more vulnerable in our care than than they were previously changing do you have anything to say about that first of all Josie is that a fair is that a fair assessment yeah I I think so I I mean we take young children and we take their names off them and assign them numbers like they didn't ask Fitch it's it's not okay and we have more than a duty of care to these people it's not like they said, hey, I want to enrol in this school, not this one, and they picked the wrong school and there was an avalanche at the school. It's people coming here begging for help, are stripping them of everything that made them human, and then paying people to look after them who then rape them and then not doing anything about that. Like it's not loosely associated with us. It's something we're directly doing and we need to be accountable for. When were you at work uh, in the system, Josie? My, I ceased working in immigration detention in 2012, early mm. 2012, and since then I've worked in various community capacities and mm. have been volunteering in the sector also. But it was when I ceased working then that I started to write my book. Mm. And, and in the course of writing your book, of course, you've been exposed to so many other people speaking one-on-one with immigrants and their um, families and and people who have passed through the system in that experience before actually before i ask you about where how far you think we've come as a nation especially with recent announcements what has this last couple of years been like for you and in the process of of writing your book a reason to live what what have you learnt? um i've learned two things and the first is that Australia isn't the country that I was raised to believe that it was. I was raised to believe we were the country of a fair go who would 
always help anybody. And it seems that with successive governments over the last few years, that dream has sort of been stripped away. So I feel in that way quite violated by mm. the Australian government. Um, the other thing that I've learned is that the human spirit has amazing capacity to survive and to recover. I remember in 2012 a boat sank um, between Indonesia and Christmas Island and no part of that boat, no survivor, no body, nothing was ever found. The only reason we knew that boat had sank is because a huge number of Palestinians around Australia contacted the Red Cross and said, you know, my sister, my brother, my cousin, my somebody mm. left Christmas, uh, sorry, left Indonesia on this day and they didn't arrive on Christmas Island. And one of those Palestinians contacted me. He wasn't, his English wasn't great and he couldn't watch the news um, as such. And so he rang me and was like, look, can you help me look into this? And I was like, yep, no worries. And so I made a lot of inquiries, did a lot of research and realised that, yes, in fact, that boat had sunk. There was no question that anyone could have survived. Mm. And so I explained that to him, which was devastating. Um, but then he's like, okay, well, so my sister, her husband and two children were on that boat and my mum's in Iraq. We need to tell her. And so I went to Melbourne and met up with him and we Skyped his mother who was um, in Iraq, a Palestinian woman, and he interpreted. And so I explained to her what had happened and how I'd come to find out that the boat had sunk, which meant that her daughter, her son-in-law and her two grandchildren had passed away. Mm. And it was, it was devastating. She was crying. I was crying. It was absolutely awful. And at the end of that, she thanked me because Australians were kind enough to let her know what had happened. And I just remember looking at her being like, why are you thanking me? <laughs> and, um, but yeah, people, people can be amazing in ways that we can't imagine. And um, I see yeah, that's one thing I've seen as a result of this work. So then what are your thoughts looking now at the most recent announcements of our government about this intake of an, a new and additional 12,000 just from Syria? Is it, is think, it in any way encouraging, Josie? Is it something it, it, to be proud of? I don't think it's something that the government ought to be proud of, but I think it's something that the public of Australia should embrace and own. Like that change came about, that intake increase came about because Australia stood up and said, Mr Prime Minister, this is not good enough and this is not who we are. And because Australia stood up and said that change happened and Australia, mm. I think, needed to see that we can make change. Um, in terms of, you know, praising the government, yes, I'm pleased. Yes, I'm very happy that this change is occurring. However, Australia is still not meeting the targets that we agreed to when we signed the convention. We're still looking up innocent people. We're still looking up innocent kids. So this, mm. this good deed that we've done is a good start. But that's, that's all the it is convention on, on the rights of the refugee. I'm sorry? That's the convention on the on the rights of the refugee. No, I'm talking about the Refugee Convention um, of 1951, mm. where we agreed to protect refugees. Mm. Um, yeah, the ba the one on which all of our laws around this are based, mm, and our obligations. Yes. So we should take responsibility for this decision. Absolutely. And and, and maybe we should be 
do, do you feel that Australia is a racist country? I don't believe that individuals on an individual level are. I believe we have policies which are racist. I believe that we have laws and policies which are inherently sexist also, which makes it very difficult for a lot of people to get ahead. I don't believe that Australians on an individual level are not kind and not compassionate. Um, no matter what colour they are or where they're from. We meet people every day that are good people. Mm. But we also, unfortunately, live somewhere where people, Aussies are laid back. We don't we don't read into stuff. We believe what we're told and we go to work and we get our job done. That's what Aussies do. And we're nice to the people that we meet along the way. So when we have a government that tells us that boat people are the enemy or Islam is the enemy or brown people are the enemy or whatever it is on any given day, then Australians just go, okay, well, that's clearly what we're doing today, and then we go and do it. And as a brown person, huh? as a person, as a brown person myself. Oh, of, yeah, sorry, Daniel. <laughs> of the chocolate side of of the of the Cadbury, you know, white deck or whatever it is that chocolate where there's the white and the brown. Top I would deck. be the brown side. Top deck. Yes, yes, you would. Yes. Um, I would take offence at being called uh, a menace because chocolate is a wonderful thing, but um, Josie. You know, you've seen a lot and you've experienced a lot firsthand. You feel that Australia is a country full of potential, it would seem like, and a a country where people are inherently good. So can you give us, just in closing, some practical steps, especially as insofar as dealing or addressing the things that we don't see goes? Can we do anything to, for example, improve the conditions of the detention centres that we do have in this country, not to mention those of the offshore detention centres that we know even less about. Can we do anything to help? Absolutely. We can be a voice which tells government, this is not okay with me. We may or may not have voted for the government that is in as individuals. We may or may not agree with their policies. We may agree with some of their policies and not others. But regardless of that, the democracy under which we live says that we can say, look, Mr. Prime Minister, one, two, three is fine with me. Number four has got to change. And we can do that en masse. And when we do, things change and we get intakes of 12,000 Syrian refugees because we as a country said that's what we want and that's Mm. the change we want to make. And so being aware of that at that level is a great thing. The other thing at a more community level is – Working with agencies that are on the ground, Vinnie, Salvos, Eddie Rice, whoever in your community is the people that are doing stuff that's nice to people, mm. it's that simple. Get on board and help them because if we get 12,000 refugees coming from any country into Australia, that will, of course, put a strain and make changes for existing services. So the Louis Van, the soup van in Hobart, they'll need a bit of extra help. Because they might get a few more Australians, they might get more Syrians coming in. To be helping make a difference to resettling communities in Hobart, in Australia, Mm. Mm. you don't need to be necessarily working on the front line with a Syrian family. You just need to be helping do the things in the community that help the community move forward. And that's in your role as a teacher, teaching the kids to be kind and to learn more and to ask, what can I do next? What can I do extra? Mm. Um, helping the services that are providing food, shelter, 
financial counselling, um, domestic violence counselling, trauma counselling, any of those things, all of those services will be impacted when we bring in extra people. Mm. Not because the extra people are a problem, but because extra people means extra help is needed, which means mm. extra hands are needed, and every Australian has two of those. Mm. And so whatever it is that you're good at, whatever it is, whatever field you're working in, um, be it journalism and you're doing what you do, or if you're a cook and you can spare a few hours for a local soup kitchen, or you're a teacher and you can spare some time to tutor, whatever it is, somebody is already doing it in your community or somebody else is thinking of it. So get online and find out who that is. Get on Facebook, you know, start up a Facebook group, people in Hobart who want to help tutor English. Or be whatever in any of the is. other mainland cities, we know wherever exactly. it is. Um, and do what it is that you do and be kind. Like that's that, that's the way we're going to move forward as a country. Mm-hmm. Well, Josie Young, it's been um, a very insightful conversation with you. At times kind of harrowing, to be honest. But okay. then also but also there's a but I also do feel better about um the people in this country and also the recent moves made for um, what, you know, what I hope will be a better future for our, for our newcomers. Yes. Thank I you so, so much, too. Josie. No, thank you for your time. So you've been listening to conversations with Daniel Noor, and this is the end of our series on the plight of the refugee. Tune into Cradio to hear other fantastic podcasts for your listening. You've been listening to an episode of Conversations with Daniel Noor. And for more episodes of Conversations and for more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.